preaching of the word, and so we're going to be reading out of Acts chapter 9. If you'll open up your Bibles to Acts 9, verse 32, it's on page 919 in those hardback Bibles that we just handed out. And once you get there, if you're able, will you stand, and we're going to read the scriptures. Acts 9, beginning in verse 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died, and when they washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord." And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. May this word of the Lord unite us as a church and make us bold as missionaries. Go ahead and take a seat, take a seat. All right, well, just to get rolling, just to kind of acknowledge the elephant in the room, Dorcas is a weird name, okay, so... (laughs) We laughed at it, we heard it, we thought about it, we don't need to giggle the rest of the service. If your name is Tabitha, you're Dorcas the rest of the week. That's your name from now on, you're Dorcas, and then people get sick of it, and it's already not funny, so we're moving on. So um, I grew up in Tempe, and I went to McClintock High School. Any McClintock High School people in here? None? One in the back, thank you very much. And we were major rivals with Tempe High School, and Tempe High people in the room. Boo! Yeah, yeah, so, uh, and I was on the basketball team at McClintock, and our team was really, really good. Like the, uh, I wasn't really good. I had mostly sat on the bench and just watched people play basketball and called it exercise, but the team was really good. Like playoff, competitive, um, they were a solid team, it was a lot of fun. Uh, we were blowing people out by 30-something points, and then it came to uh, the p- point in the year where we had to go and play against Tempe High, who were our super rivals. Like they were like the, the school where we hated, like they had to call an extra cops because of how rowdy the crowd got and it was kind of a whole situation playing against our rivals and this year in particular our team was really really good and their team was just pure garbage like they're we're talking about are we going to win the playoffs and they're talking about are we going to get a win and so we were playing this team and it was kind of this this huge rivalry and we were supposed to blow them out but we had to go onto their turf into into their place and so we didn't have the home field or the home court advantage. And if you've never played sports, there's all types of things that really contribute to home court advantage. There's just familiarity, there's being aware of the environment, there's routine, there's all these things that are kind of 
hard to tell that contribute to this home court advantage. But in particular, one is just the crowd because you're in somebody else's crowd. They're booing you when you're doing stuff. They're yelling when you need to be talking. It's kind of this whole negative experience. And I remember we were this really good ranked team playing against this totally garbage team who was our rivals. And we went into their house and they beat us. And it was this shameful, terrible event. Well, I mean, they beat us. I didn't even play, but they beat the other people who were playing. So they kind of beat me. Uh, but I remember going home on, like, going to the locker room and our coach, who was just kind of a hothead, he sweated a lot anyway, just screaming that if you can't win on the road, it doesn't matter where you can win. You can win all the games at home if you want to, but if you can't go to someone else's house and beat them in their own gym, it doesn't matter how good your team is. You're not going to be a championship team and you're not going to be that good. And this idea of going on the road and getting wins is a lot of what we see in this passage today is that Peter goes on the road. In the very beginning, in Acts 1, God tells the people, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, you will be my witnesses. And this is kind of significant because in the first century, and even in the ancient Near Eastern context, not even in Greco-Roman area, they believed in regional gods, where this city had this god, this city had that god, this area had this god, this area had this god. And so to go and say, no, Jesus is Lord over all the cities was pretty pushing back on the culture's norm, which said, no, Yahweh can stay in Jerusalem and we'll keep worshiping Athena over here. And so what you see here is this crucial point in this gospel story of the church growing from a small group of people into this global movement that it is now, and Peter goes on the road. We have a map that shows you kind of where they're headed and where they're going. And so you see that Jerusalem is about 30-ish miles from Lydda and then Joppa. And so Peter's out of his hometown. He's leaving behind his home field advantage. And he's going into this place that has a different culture, different crowds, different languages. And there's this question that would be ringing in the Jewish readers' minds that's saying, does God's power work there or does God's power only work in Jerusalem? Do people have to come to Jerusalem to experience God's power? Do they need to come to the temple? Or is the temple going out to all the people? And what we see here is this idea that Peter is going and God's going to continue to validate his ministry and God's going to use him in all these new and all these different places. And here's kind of the message we're going to begin with before we even get rolling, is that a lot of you here today feel like most of your life is spent behind enemy lines. Like you don't have home field advantage. There's a sense in which maybe at home, people are hostile to your faith. Maybe at work, you're minimized or dismissed or discouraged because you might be the only Christian there. Maybe you see injustice in places and you kind of feel like you're the only one who sees it and you feel like everybody else is just a little bit crazy. But here's the beauty of what this passage illustrates and what it also shows us in our own life is that when you are a part of God's kingdom, when you're a part of what God is doing on earth, when by the Spirit you are going as a believer in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, there are no away games. The culture might look like they're the home team and you're the visiting team as a Christian, but in reality, Psalm 24 teaches that the whole earth belongs to the Lord and the fullness thereof. And I want us to see that in this passage that as Peter goes, led by the Spirit, the Spirit is pushing back on the kingdom of darkness and establishing roots of the kingdom of God that just like wherever we are in our different phases of life, our different homes, our different workplaces, our different rest places, God is at work and you are never the visiting team. That God owns every place, 
that it's really the kingdom of darkness that is where it shouldn't be. The ones that should feel not at home and the ones that should feel awkward and out. Because the kingdom of light is moving forward. And we're going to see how God is at work in the midst of these predominantly, uh, predominantly Gentile contexts, predominantly Greek contexts, and how a Jew filled with the Spirit can go and still do God's work in a place where it kind of shouldn't be done. So let me pray, and we're going to walk through this text and see a handful of things, and we're going to be encouraged by God's word. Let me pray. God, I pray for all the people here this morning, all the people who aren't here as well, who feel like because of their faith, they are the away team. I pray that they'd sense your spirit and how good you are, that you push back the darkness in the most unlikely places, that you encourage us to follow you without shame in the craziest of places. And God, let us see how how you work through Peter and how that can encourage our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So what this passage kind of highlights and what we're going to talk about is you kind of see three things in this passage in Acts 9, 32 through 43. Um, we share in this new thing, uh, and you see that in verses 32 to 35 and verse 42, that we share in this new thing that is actually an old thing, we're going to see that in the next story, that upsets or pushes back on or disrupts our culture's thing. That we share in this new thing that's actually an old thing that upsets our culture's thing. So first what we see is this healing of Aeneas and Tabitha. And these people are broken, they're in all types of pain, and there's uh, a lot going on that would make it pretty hopeless uh, situations. So for example, I want us to take a moment and just dwell on and think about the reality of how different Aeneas and Tabitha were. Tabitha is like this woman of God, She probably served in a big variety. Like they they list her credentials. She was a godly woman. She's a female disciple, which is a term of great honor. She had all these people around her mourning her loss, saying what happened, like we miss her, we miss her, we miss her. She's involved in the community. You can kind of think about even strategically, you go like, oh, who's gonna fill her shoes in the church? She discipled so many young women. And then we hear about Aeneas, who doesn't really have any of that. There's not people kind of around him. He's kind of by himself. He gets healed, and we don't even know if he becomes a Christian afterwards. We don't really know much about him. But we have this godly woman who's very clearly an asset to the church, and this person who kind of seems like he wouldn't be that much of an asset to the church. And one of the things that we can do as people in this broken world is buy into this kind of Darwinistic, naturalistic view of thinking in which we view people and value them with regards to what they bring to the table economically. Or value people with regards to what they bring to the table in terms of the church growing. Or value them in terms of their physical ability or inability. And what we see here, which kind of should push us back a little bit is that God enters into their life and treats them both equally, heals them both, loves them both, and encourages them both. Not on the basis of what they receive 
or what they go looking for. Aeneas wasn't, doesn't say he was praying for healing, doesn't say he was begging God, just says he was kind of laying there. And after eight years of being unhealed, I'd probably do the same thing. It's pretty easy to lose hope. It's a kind of a broken world. So it's not, he wasn't healed because of his faith. He wasn't healed because he was missed. He wasn't healed because others prayed for him. He was healed because just God loved him. And a lot of times when we look at these miracles in the Gospels and in Acts, there's three things we should notice in these miracles. The first one is that God is just expressing his compassion and love for broken people, period. That God heals and he builds people up and he encourages people just on the basis that he is a loving, gracious father, period. And so we should be able to read this story and just see that God loves Aeneas, God loves Dorcas, The second thing we can see in these healing stories is that uh, God is authenticating his messenger and his message. So Peter is the one who heals him. And so what we've been kind of seeing in the story so far is that Peter was kind of the main character for a while, but for the last two chapters in Acts, Paul or Saul became the main character. And this is kind of redirecting focus back towards Peter. And this is a big deal because in the next chapter, in chapters 10 and 11, Peter's going to do something that is so culturally offensive that many Jews would have dismissed his gifting and the remaining presence of the Spirit in his life because of how offensive what he's about to do culturally is. And so in one sense, Luke records these two miracles as a reminder of saying, now remember, Peter is still filled with the Spirit, and here's proof. Example A, example B. And that's kind of just setting Peter up for what he's about to do, what we're going to talk about next week, is that Peter's going to do some culturally offensive things, and God is authenticating that Peter is a messenger. The third thing that we get to see here in what... uh, healings and these things do is they are a foretaste of the coming cosmic renewal of the kingdom. Now those are a bunch of big words. I'm going to unpack them. That just like when you go to eat ice cream, you get a sample and that's a real taste of what the future is going to be like. When God heals, when the kingdom breaks in, when the spirit works in people's lives, it's this microcosm, this small taste of the eventually coming holistic renewal. That in the very beginning, Adam and Eve, it was good. There was no pain, no sickness perfect shalom, perfect wholeness, perfect peace. But then when human sinned, brokenness and decay and all types of pain spread throughout all of creation, and what we see here now is when Jesus comes to earth and he says, repent and believe, the kingdom of God is at hand, he's saying that that brokenness is now being undone by the gospel. And that as he sends out his spirit, there's these little foretaste communities popping up in which God is healing people and showing them what it's going to be like when Jesus finally and eventually returns and makes all things new. So in this healing story, in both these healing stories, we see three things. God's pure compassion. Secondly, God's authenticating Peter and what he's about to do. And thirdly, we as a people are seeing a foretaste of what it's going to be like in the new creation when there are no more people who are crippled, where death is gone and wiped away, and that weeping of all kinds is done. And so this new thing, go ahead and put up this next slide, we share in this new thing, and the new thing is the inbreaking of the kingdom by the Spirit to push back the darkness and undo brokenness of all kinds. And I want us to focus on those words, we share. In both healing stories, verse 35 and verse 42, it says, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. 
And then verse 42, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Sometimes we have this tendency as people that when God works in our life in major miraculous ways or in smaller miraculous ways, that we want to keep it to ourselves. Like it's my story. Sometimes that's because our stories of healing, our stories of forgiveness, our stories of God's encouragement in our lives require that we admit that for a period there was brokenness and shame. And so we don't want to tell people what God has done because in doing so we have to tell people what exactly was it that he was undoing. And what we see here is both for Aeneas and Tabitha, God doesn't just heal them for their own sake, but he heals them for the sake of the community to see this foretaste. I just want to take a moment and pause and recognize that the church owns God's work of healing, the whole church, not just gateway. But if God has healed you, share that story with the church like Danny just did a moment ago because it encourages many people that we share in Aeneas and Tabitha's story that it belongs to the church as much as it belongs to them. Do you have things that God has done in your life, miraculous, super miraculous, medium miraculous, whatever you want to call it, that you haven't just shared with people like here's what God has done? Because sharing those stories of God at work in our lives individually really encourage the church. They really encourage people all around us. And I want us to recognize that as a community, God is at work amongst us. And my, like I hear people say all the time, I had no idea that God did this. Even though, because this person told these three people, but then they said, please don't tell anybody else because I just, whatever. And you're allowed to do that. And I want you to recognize that you're free to not tell everybody your whole business about everything. But I want us to also recognize that if God's at work in your life, share those stories because we are a community that God is working in us individually and corporately as a community. And this is a new thing that we share in. And here's a, go to this next slide. This kind of blows my mind a little bit. Verse 42, and it became known throughout all Joppa. So Tabitha's dead. The disciples are weeping for her. And then Peter comes to town. And then Tabitha's not dead. And it became known through all Joppa. And then many believe. I think that word many should say all. <laughs> it became known throughout all Joppa. And then they all believed. Doesn't that make, that would make sense to me. Hey, someone was dead. Now they're not dead. Mm, pass. This is a bit of what Jesus was talking about multiple times in the Gospels when he's talking about people come up to him and say, show us signs and wonders, show us signs and wonders. And he says, even if I showed you signs and wonders, you still wouldn't believe due to the hardness of your hearts. There's probably a lot of people here today, probably a handful of people who you're not a Christian. That's good. We're glad that you're here. We want non-Christians to be able to come here, to be able to explore the faith, to not feel this pressure to convert or get out. But at the same time, I want you to be honest with yourself. What would it take for you to become a Christian to say yes to Jesus? What would it take? Think through it. Write it down. What would it take for you to become a Christian? Because sometimes, most of the time, disbelief is a visceral thing that we're not totally sure. If I saw a miracle, would I believe? Maybe, maybe not. If that's honest, if that's where you're at, be honest about it. Uh, 
Because if a belief can't be overturned by evidence, then it's not necessarily the most solid belief to stand on. And so I just want to challenge you, if you're not a Christian here today, here's a story in the Bible of people who saw a miracle and still didn't become Christians. If you saw a miracle, would you become one? Because we pray that you see one. <laughs> and we believe they happen. So this new thing, God's kingdom breaking into earth, we're sharing in this renewal. God is working us as individuals, and that's meant to encourage and upbuild the whole church. But this new thing is actually an old thing. So go ahead and go to this next slide. This old thing. Uh, what we see in this story of Dorcas being healed or Tabitha being healed uh, is actually, if you looked at the story and then read these three stories, there's remarkable structural similarity between how God works this. So in 1 Kings 17, Elisha raises, Elijah raises the widow's son. In 2 Kings 4, Elisha raises the Shunammite's son. And in Mark 5, Jesus raises Jairus' daughter. And so what we're looking at here is, even in particular in this Mark 5 passage, the story is so similar, it's pretty much just one letter different. Go ahead and go to the next slide. So this actually an old thing. In Mark 5, 41, Jesus says, Talitha rise, which is Greek for little girl, arise. And here, Peter says, Tabitha, which is what it would sound like in Greek, Tabitha, arise. And so what Luke is doing is he's showing us how similar what Peter's doing is to what Jesus was doing and demonstrating to us that it's a new thing and that the kingdom of God is breaking in in a new and special way, but it's also this old thing, that the God we serve is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God was at work renewing his creation, encouraging his people. And the spirit was present in the lives of his people back in, in the king stories in the Old Testament before Jesus' times. Jesus comes and he's a new thing but it's actually part of this old thing, the people of God and their movement through Israel's history. And then Peter comes and he's continuing what Jesus started. This is important for us because the book of Acts starts out like this. I previously wrote to you about what Jesus began to do, insinuating and teaching us that the book of Acts is all about what God now is continuing to do, not by the physical person of Christ, but by the spirit of Christ in and through the church. So what's happening in Acts is part of this larger story that God has been working from the very beginning. It's not just these pockets out of nowhere, these disconnected pieces from history, but it's part of this historical narrative in which God is showing his compassion, showing his gospel, and showing his foretaste to the people all around. And a lot of times in this entrepreneurial culture of ours, we get wrapped up in being original and in saying and doing new things. We can get caught up in Redemption Gateway, we're a church plant, we're original, we have wood on the walls, it's cool, it's different, it's new. Uh, we have a table, not a pulpit, because we're cool, we're new, we're different. Uh, you know, we have a head mic, not a handheld mic. You know, like there's, there's, we can get caught up in all these like doing new things and feeling like and many of you became Christians here. So this might be the, this feels extremely new for you because this is the basis of your faith. But for us as a community, we have to recognize that we are just one of the many churches that God is working his gospel to be made known through. That we are part of this larger story of Arizona, but we're part of this larger story of the United States. We're part of this larger story of the world, but even more specifically, we're part of this larger story that began in Genesis and that's ending in Revelation. That we as a church are part of the movement of God that began 2,000 years ago. Do you as an individual 
believe that you are part of that same movement that began thousands of years ago? Or is that something that happens over there? Like these, this group is part of the movement of God, but I'm over here. Or the movement of God might be up there on the stage, but not down here in the chairs. Can you say to yourself, I don't say my name, but me, insert name here, I'm a part of God's story. I, Seth Trout, I'm a part of God's story, that I'm a piece in God's puzzle, I'm a character in God's narrative. God's not a part of my story, rather I'm a part of God's story. That's what's being highlighted here, is that Peter's not doing a new thing, he's doing the same thing that God's always been doing. We'll look at a couple more pieces here in this passage before we go to our next point. Uh, Look with me at uh, verse uh, 38. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him. So the disciples even then recognized that there was a unique authority that Peter had as an apostle. Go get Peter. We've been praying for healing, but bring Peter sent two men to him, urging him, please come without delay. So Peter rose and went to them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room and the widow stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics. That's part of the formal uh, mourning process in that community and other garments that Dorcas made. So they're in the thick of mourning and weeping. They're wearing clothes that the deceased had made to honor her. They're crying and weeping. And you notice what Peter doesn't do here. He doesn't walk in, sees the weeping and mourning, and says, hey guys, Christ is risen, turn that frown upside down. (laughs) That's not what happens. That's not what happens at all. But I sense that, I see this on social media a lot, I sense this in my own life a lot, this pressure to skip past negative feelings as quickly as possible to point to some silver lining and to kind of positive spin everything as fast as possible. And what it does is it, so did Peter have doubts that he was going to raise Tabitha from the dead? No. Did, did, did Peter know Christ is risen and he's going to come back again? Yes. But Peter still lets them mourn and weep the brokenness of this world even though he was absolutely certain of the coming resurrection. We see this in Jesus' life as well, when Lazarus passes away, and Jesus shows up, about to raise Lazarus from the dead, and he weeps first. You think, what a waste of time. Why would he spend time crying when he could just heal it? Like, but I think a piece of that is what Peter and Jesus show us is they're giving us permission to feel and sense and mourn and lament the full weight of the brokenness of the world. Not as an expression of doubting our future hope, but it's part of being human, is to be present in the midst of the pain. There's a lot of brokenness at Gateway, a lot. Parents passing away, tests being failed, Sickness unhealed, brokenness, hard hearts, brokenness, hard hearts. And if we try and look past that or look through it and just meditate on the future hope 
and not presently mourn, lament, and feel the brokenness of the current painful reality, we're walling ourselves off from a huge piece of the scriptures, a huge piece of what it means to be human, and we're denying so much of what it means to be present in a place with a people. And I just want to, wanted to pause and tell everyone here at Gateway, you have so much permission from the scriptures just to mourn and lament brokenness. And doing so does not mean you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus or in the second coming of Jesus. Doing so means that you're doing a good job being present in a broken world. So this new thing, that's part of this old thing that upsets our culture's thing. And so here's kind of a part that we're gonna have to kind of imagine ourselves for a moment because we don't really recognize we're culturally separated from what's going on here, but Peter goes on the road. He's working miracles in these predominantly Gentile contexts, and we have to take a moment and recognize how weird and difficult this would be for Peter. I have a quote from Kent Hughes talking about Peter's legacy, Peter's tradition. You can put that up there. Peter was heir to a strong tradition of prejudice that went clear back to Abraham and was exemplified in men like Jonah who resisted bearing witness to the Gentiles and was actually angry with God when the Ninevites repented and escaped judgment. So here's Peter. In the first century, Jews were remarkably racist. They like scoffed at the nations, the Gentiles, the Goyim. They're these unclean people. And next week, we're going to see some unclean people get baptized into the faith. And it's so culturally offensive. But look at how Peter is being prepared by God here through his cross-cultural experiences. So not to despiritualize what's happening here, but Peter goes into different cultures and experiences God's work there. And that, in a sense, is preparing him for what God's about to do later. We shouldn't devalue or minimize the value of cross-cultural experiences and being with and spending time with people who are different than us. You can't information your way out of prejudice. You have to experience your way out of prejudice to be with people who are different than you. Peter goes and he's with people who are different than him in a way that's preparing him to preach the gospel to these group of people who would never otherwise come to faith in Christ. And in particular, there's one area here in which Peter rebels against, in a positive sense, his cultural issues. In verse 43, we see Simon the Tanner. And so Simon the Tanner, verse 43, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a Tanner. Now a Tanner is not like a Tanner we have nowadays. Peter's not getting a fake bake before he goes to summer vacation. That's not what's happening. Peter's not looking to get bronzed up before he puts on his bathing suit. That's not what we're talking about. A Tanner is someone who would take dead animals and turn their skin into leather. It's a pretty nasty experience like however nasty you think it is take that nasty and take it up a notch like this is a gross place and it's culturally really frowned upon and gross as well this is not a very hygiene hygienic situation such that that tanners their homes had to be 50 cubits outside of the city walls so it's not just like this person's kind of a proverbial outsider 
this person is literally an outsider. They are outside the city walls, 50 cubits out, in their house, kind of by themselves. People won't spend time with them because they're technically unclean. And so for a Jew to even walk into a tanner's house would have made that person unclean and they'd have to go through ceremonial washings and cleansing and things like that. So this is significant and I want us to spend time just kind of thinking about what would it feel like to be Peter and to stay for multiple days in this house where the tanner lives. But then also I want us to think about Simon and think about what would it be like to be a tanner and offer hospitality and welcome people into your space that you're ashamed of. So Peter, very much like me, uh, I don't know know Peter's mind, but I can assume that a lot of us here were in pretty suburb, pretty wealthy area. Um, Not everybody here is wealthy, but our area is certainly suburby, kind of Gilbert, Queen Creek. In general, our neighborhood's pretty well off. And one of the things that we recognize about people who are generally well off is they love to have the appearance, the appearance of having everything together. A couple weeks ago, I shared a story about how I was just getting really arrogant and I backed out of my driveway too fast and I busted off the mirror from my car. And it was kind of like a moment of shame and slow down, son, you're not that cool. And then the next day after I shared that story, someone called me from this church and said, hey, I'd really love to fix your mirror for you. I worked in an auto body shop. I could really help you out. And my first internal flinch was, no, I can fix it on my own. I don't know how to fix it on my own. But that was my first flinch. I can do it on my own. I can do it on my own. I'm fine. I don't need help. I can YouTube video this or something. And then, then I thought, I'll just pay for it on my own. That's fine. And so I had like this kind of, I'm like asking him kind of just random questions, trying to kill time while I'm internally, the Spirit's convicting me of my arrogance. And I ended up saying yes because the Spirit overcame my arrogance. And this guy came and fixed my mirror and... I was just really blessed by that. So, but that internal flinch of, no, I'm fine, I can do it on my own, no. It's really arrogant to only offer hospitality and offer help and never receive hospitality and never receive help. We talk about Jesus the servant a lot, and we should talk about Jesus the servant a lot. But uh, I have a quote here from uh, Tim Chester who talks about how much Jesus received as well as how much... Jesus gave. Tim Chester says this, consider Jesus. Yes, he adopted the attitude of slave when he washed his disciples' feet. But think too how often he accepts service. He accepts hospitality from Levi. He lets the woman in Simon's house wash his feet. He asks for water from the woman in Samaria. He's not just the helper of sinners, still less the project worker. He's the friend of sinners who came eating and drinking. So if we want to follow Jesus, this involves both serving and offering hospitality and in humility receiving service and help. And I think in particular for suburban type people, we kind of want to pretend we don't need help. We kind of want to pretend I got it, I'm fine, I got it, I'm fine. And I think true humility like Christ is able to receive. Peter receives it. Now think about in terms of Simon here. Simon, you know, picture whatever the dirtiest your house has ever been and then add a bunch of dead animals to that. <laughs> like your house hasn't been as messy as Simon's has. It just hasn't. It's just not, not true. Similarly, 
a lot of times we can get caught up in this set of thinking that my space, my house, my apartment, my whatever it is, is not like that person's space. Therefore, I can't really offer hospitality until my house is something else. I have kids, there's messes everywhere, I only have two bedrooms, I only have this much square feet, I only have whatever, I only have whatever, which is 100% relative, because if you had whatever space you live in in a third world country, you'd have the mansion on the block. But a lot of, like, can you imagine if they're in a group meeting and they all kind of like, so how is Tabitha getting healed? Yeah, pretty cool, right? Okay, Peter, where are you staying? I don't know. Hey, can I stay with you? And Simon goes, ah, I don't want to have someone over into my space because it's, Peter, I'm a tanner. I don't know if you know, but yeah, Peter goes, fine, I'll stay with you. That'll be good. And I think that I hear this in particular from people with kids at home like this kind of experience of my house isn't as tidy as those people with no kids' house or people with lower incomes who go, I don't want to w- let welcome people into my house because it's not as impressive as that house. But look at here. Peter the apostle stays with the most outcast of people and Simon offers his hospitality even though it was kind of socially and culturally a big barrier. And so whether it's economically, whether it's in terms of the number of bedrooms you have, whether it's fill in the blank, whatever it is, whatever you have to offer, if you offer it, God will use it. Whatever you have to offer, if you offer it, God will use it. One of the things that makes me sad, I remember talking to a church planner who planted a church in inner city, and they're talking about how they're trying to get more community group leaders to host people Monday through Friday, but they couldn't get people in the church to do it because of their low incomes. They felt a sense of shame that they didn't want to have people over their house. They don't want people to see their, their space. And I hope that we as a church don't set that expectation. Our culture wants us to set that expectation. Our culture wants to value people based on what they bring to the table and how big their house is. But this new thing that the kingdom's doing won't allow us to do it. So maybe you haven't offered to host a small group. Maybe you haven't offered someone people to come on and you kind of feel like, Simon, whatever you have, if you offer it, God will use it. Whatever you have. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to continue our worship. God, I thank you for the ways in which you push back on our culture's norms. That you push back on the evil ways in which our culture wants to value people on the grounds of what they bring to the table, how healthy they are, or how much money they make. I pray that you can expose in our hearts by your spirit the ways in which we're swept up into that evil way of thinking and with grace invite us to repent from it. Thank you for the work you did in Peter. Thank you for the work you're doing in us. And God, I pray that uh, we can be encouraged as your people, that whatever we have to offer, you want to use it. In Jesus' name, amen.